AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and welcome to part two of our Creature Ween Spooktacular. Today we're visiting the spookiest, smartest, most spectacular family in the animal kingdom the Corvids. Crows, ravens, rooks, and more. Are crows the smartest being on Earth? Do they mourn their dead? Do they hold a grudge? Discover this and more as we answer the age-old question, are Eurasian magpies too obsessed with themselves? Joining me today, I have an incredibly exciting and special guest that I have been looking forward to having on the show for some time. She's an ornithologist who specializes in corvids, a crow behavioral researcher, Twitter celebrity, creator of the crow or no hashtag, probably a secret bird herself, Dr. Kaylee Swift. Ah, hi. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. I am a big fan of yours. I have been observing the crow or no hashtag game on Twitter for a long time. It's very fun. Yay. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, it was. I can't. I think it's been like five years Wow, <laughs> that I've been playing this game uh, for maybe maybe only four, but like many years, half a decade, every week <laughs> that I've been playing this. And I'm like, amazed and so pleased that people keep coming back to ask this 
what seems to be a very simple but turns out to be very tricky question yes. of is that ambiguous black thing in the sky a crow or not? <laughs> right, right. And I think it's interesting. So one thing that people struggle with is telling the difference between a crow and a raven, but there are actually a lot of corvids and other birds in general that kind of look like a crow, but they aren't. Just so the listener knows, corvids is a family of birds that includes crows, ravens, rooks, and jackdaws, which all look actually pretty similar, but there are also other family members, such as jays, magpies, nutcrackers, uh, tree pies, which are found in tropical regions, and chuffs, which uh, are actually something I just found out about. They're found in uh, North Africa and Southern Eurasia, so a big, diverse family of birds. Uh, so they're not all crow-like, but a lot of them really look like crows. And uh, they're also crows. There's not just like one species of crow, right? There are a whole bunch of different species of birds that we call crows. Yeah, exactly. So if we, if we want to put our sort of taxonomy hats on and think about how we classify animals, you just described Corvidae, which is at the family level. So that's kind of our, our biggest umbrella. And then if we drop down and get a little more narrow from there, you have all of the different genera or genus. And so the Corvus genus is probably the one that's most familiar to people. And that's the genus that houses specifically the crows, ravens, and rooks. Uh, and in that genus alone, there are over 45 different species of birds. So that is absolutely one of the, the elements that makes this game a little bit more interesting and fun is that it's not as simple as just asking like uh, American crow versus common raven, but because I can draw on corvids all around the world, uh, some of these species, you know, most people have never heard of like the, the gray crow or maybe the pied crow or the large-billed crow. It just adds another fun element to this game and hopefully makes people appreciate just how much diversity exists within this genus and this family. It's a game that I struggle with. I'm like, oh, I know everything about birds. No, not at all. I <laughs> will see something like, oh, but its tail is shaped like a triangle. So that means it must be, um, that's, that's got to be a raven. And it's like, no, 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 that's, that's not. I'm totally wrong every time. <laughs> I mean, I think I've talked on the show before sort of like how you differentiate between a raven and a crow. Like there are a few signs in terms of like their voices, you know, ravens uh, sort of have this like long drawn out croak a little more and, and crows have the caw, caw, caw kind of thing. And But it's some of the distinctions are sort of a little bit of a gray area because you could say like, oh, well, ravens are a little more solitary, but not always. They sometimes like to hang out in groups. Crows generally hang out in larger groups, but that's also not always true. What are some ways that you can identify a crow and what are sort of some of the tricky things that happen in terms of mistakes made with crow identification? Sure. So like you're hinting at, there's very few kind of objective field marks, things that are foolproof ways to tell, because there just is a lot of sort of individual variation and nuance that, that makes it tricky. But generally speaking, one of the best uh, features to look for is ravens have these heavily textured lanceolated throat feathers called hackles. And it gives their throats sort of this like gruff beard-like appearance. 
And American crows, by contrast, have very smooth, kind of fine hair-like throats. And carrion crows, they edge a little bit hacklier, but it's still, it's still much, you know, it's like a teenager getting their scruff in versus, you know, mountain. Carrion crows are found in like the UK, um, whereas American crows are, well, found in America. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Carrion crows are basically found throughout Europe and Eurasia. So they're, they're a very widespread species. Um, so look for those hackles. That's one of the best. No shave, uh, no shave crowvember. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Tail shape is the next one. Now for any crow or no players, they might be aggravated with me this week because I gave them a very, very tricky photo yesterday, which I'll get into in just a minute. But generally speaking, the rule is ravens have a diamond-shaped tail versus crows, whether it's American crow, carrion crow, really all the crow species have a, a square or kind of gently rounded tail shape. Right. So now like the, one is like a, like a fan, like a hand fan, that's a crow, whereas ravens kind of have a, an extra little point, tapered point at the end of their tails. Yeah, those central tail feathers are a bit longer than the rest. The one time of year that can become kind of tricky, though, is oh in the fall when these birds are molting <laughs> and crows are growing in their new tail feathers. They can get this kind mm. of scalloped, you mm. know, shape because the, the feathers haven't completely grown in and it can look just deceptively. It looks exactly like a raven's they're wedge. Just, they're just toying with us at this they're point. They're just toying with us, yes. <laughs> but generally speaking, like I said, tail shape and hackles are the two easiest kind of foolproof ways to tell them apart. Behaviorally, geographically, you're more likely to find ravens in rural areas or in wildland areas. They're more carrion specialists, but they'll absolutely head into town, you know, if, if they can and there's not too much competition. And um, especially folks living in more rural cities like Bozeman, for example, they're, they're absolutely used to ravens at their local target. <laughs> Um, and there are ravens that breed in downtown LA. So, yep. so these are birds that can be city birds versus crows. They're pretty much exclusively city and, and rural birds. If they're in the woods, it's because there's a campground nearby. Right. Uh, but you very rarely find them, you know, more than about 20 miles away from any kind of human settlement. They are, they are much more sort of uh, what the scientific term we'd use is a synanthrop or an animal that really exists uh, in close company with human beings, kind of by choice or by design, so to speak. Right, an urban adapter who's just given up the wildlife almost entirely, sort of like pigeons. Yeah, yeah, urban exploiters. Yes. Um, they, yes. they are not making the city, you know, they're not making do in the cities, they are making the cities work for them. <laughs> <laughs> There's something, too, about crows that is so charming to me because they have all of the attitude of other urban exploiting birds like seagulls and pigeons, but there's something a little more elegant about it where it's like, I'm okay with the sass of a crow more than I, like when a seagull gets mad at me, I just feel kind of bullied. But when it's a crow getting mad at me, it's sort of like, oh man, this, this crow is like, like sassing me and I like it. <laughs> there, I absolutely know what you're describing. It, it, there is this sense of more playfulness mm -hmm. because crows are so aware of what they're doing and their relationships with people that there's this um, sense of purpose behind it that you can't help but like respect. <laughs> right, right. It's a little bit of mischief. It's a little bit 
of the Adams family mischief where, yeah, they, they seem very sinister, but there's a playful mischief that is, I think, really endearing. And I, I guess this kind of ties into my question about you, which is why did you pick birds and in particular corvids as your area of research? So I grew up like a total weird animal nerd. I thought I was a wolf for a long time. I can't relate at all. I bet you can't, Katie. <laughs> Most people I meet are, you know, cool uh, cool people. When I sure, meet a cool yeah. person, I just have to assume that they did not grow up. No, you know, I'm, I'm actually be being animals. sarcastic. I used to no, pretend I, I was I used to pretend I was a cricket, so I feel like we would have gotten along. <laughs> yeah, no, we absolutely did. And those people uh, always grow up to be the most awesome people. <laughs> <laughs> But so I was really into, you know, animals and wolves. And and then as I grew up, I kind of sort of lost favor with wolves a little bit as a particular species. But I really liked the kinds of things that I used to question and inquire about wolves. And that was primarily focused on like these really cool social dynamics that they live in. I just thought that was so interesting. And it seemed at the time, it seemed so different than most other animals. So then kind of like puttering along through, you know, school and getting into undergrad, that was kind of my time to to try to think more specifically about like, okay, what could I actually study? Because I have ADHD. And so it means that like, I have a very hard time focusing, obviously. (laughs) And so, you know, it's, it's not a trivial question for me to ask, like, what captivates me? Like, it's actually a really serious question because if I don't get that answer right, then I, like, cannot stick to something. Right. So I was like, okay, what can I realistically really dedicate myself to? And I was like, well, I'm still really into these questions about, like, social dynamics. And and it's really interesting, too, the more I've sort of read how there seems to be this connection between, you know, social animals and more advanced levels of cognitive function and executive function. And that seems like just a really cool world to exist in and and do research on. And then sort of in complement to that, I'd always loved birds. I grew up bird watching with my grandma. And so when I read Mind of the Raven by Bernd Heinrich, that was kind of this aha moment of like, holy crap, this is like the perfect marriage of being able to watch and ask questions about birds and exist in this space where we are inquiring about how being social maybe plays into cognition. And yeah. And so that's kind of how I arrived at Corvids. And then from there, I was kind of like, Corvids are bust, which is not a strategy (laughs) I recommend to other early professionals. (laughs) But it did work out for me. I was like, if I'm going to go to graduate school, it's going to be to study these birds. That is why I'm going. And it took some time and a lot of hard work, but I made that happen for myself. And I'm so grateful that I um, had the, the opportunity that I did to study these birds for so long. That's so interesting because I've also always had a fascination with birds. When I was a little kid, my mom said that I used to chase birds around and she was like, what are you doing? I was like, I feel like if they got to know me, they would like me. There is something fascinating about birds because they are, evolutionarily speaking, so different from us. They branched off like they're they're dinosaurs. And so to have these living dinosaurs that actually display such incredible emotional, social and cognitive intelligence is really, really fascinating. And I think there's something to see that amount of personality in something so dinosaur like, I think, is really really cool and really exciting. I mean, I think 
there are a lot of people that love bird watching. What's kind of the difference between being a casual observer of birds and actually researching their behavior? Because it's, you know, bird research goes a step beyond just like watching birds in a binocular. There are all sorts of other mechanisms at play there. The first difference is that as researchers, we don't get to stop watching them just because it gets boring. <laughs> <laughs> Which really makes me envious of the casual bird watcher sometimes because that's the thing about science that I, I, I feel like non-scientists maybe don't appreciate, um, partly because that's not the way science is often uh, portrayed or delivered to them. But it is like 99% tediousness mm -hmm. with like 1% Ah, cool <laughs> moment. Right. You're not just like looking for, hey, that bird just did something cool. You actually have to code for very specific behaviors and movements. And you have to, you can't necessarily like freely interpret like, oh, the bird looks like he's maybe interested in this thing. Like you have to actually kind of have very strict observations of behavior that are quantifiable. Other Otherwise, it's just your opinion on what the bird is doing, right? Exactly, which is, our, you know, already hard enough sometimes in the sciences, but is especially hard when you're trying to interpret animal behavior, right? When we're trying to interpret these things that um, we, we can't literally ask the animals. And so we are pretty vulnerable to, uh, if we aren't super structured, we become more vulnerable to just interpreting things through our own lens as people. Right. You can't really psychoanalyze a crow and ask, like, how are you feeling? I mean, you could with, like, actually with a raven, right? And it could technically answer because they can, they can talk. It's just they probably won't say much that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, so to be fair, all the corvids can talk, mm. uh, and not just ravens. And uh, yeah, if we could, oh my gosh, that would be, that's the dream, man. You just described the dream. But <laughs> to date, no one has ever gotten lucky enough that a craven, that a craven, <laughs> that a raven or a crow uh, just kind of offered up right, right. the answer to us. Yeah. But you know what? I, that shouldn't stop anyone from asking the question. Right. You know, statistically, one of these days, it will work. Right. So. One of these days, I'll be able to get an actual crow on the podcast and interview it. And I'll be like, how was your childhood? And it'll go, ah! <laughs> <laughs> For this week's episode, I thought we could do a fun game. I'll play some bird noises and we'll see if you can identify the call. Which corvid do you think is making this mournful croak? If you guessed Raven, give yourself a pat on the back. And who do you think is making this sound? That's a crow. And who do you think is making this call? Hangman's coming. That's Joe the Raven at Clovis Zoo in New Mexico saying, Hangman's coming. And if you think that's spooky, wait until we return when we talk about a murder of crows and crow murder. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. 
If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. So imagine that you're walking through a nice, quiet college campus, the University of Washington in Seattle. You see a few figures standing in the distance. Even from far away, you can tell something isn't quite right. As you approach, you notice they're holding something, as if offering it to some unseen entity. It dawns on you that all the figures are wearing masks of human faces that look almost realistic, but not quite. And the thing in their hands? It's a dead crow. And around them you hear the anguished cry of other crows. One of the figures holds up a sign. It reads, Crow Studies, do not be alarmed. So, Kaylee, explain yourself. This is a pretty well-known study, and to the casual observer, it looks like a bunch of people wearing humanoid masks, holding a dead crow, and pleading with people not to be alarmed. So what is going on? What are you guys up to? Is this some kind of occult ritual, or is this actual science? (laughs) So your description of, of what it would appear to, to be was is what it was, <laughs> and it was real science, though I had multiple people uh, ask me if it was some kind of occult ritual. In <laughs> fact, I was, I was trying to get one woman in a Seattle neighborhood. She had a crow nest, a crow that was nesting in her backyard, and one of the important things in how we set up the experiments is we always made sure to distance them the same distance away from nests so that how the crows responded, we could trust wasn't being influenced by how close or far we were. And so I explained to her the whole thing. You know, I, I had business cards at this point. I told her I was a researcher with the UW and I wanted to do the study on crows. I, I showed her where the crow nest was. We had a really nice conversation. What you guys were looking at is like how the crows were going to respond to right. this dead crow that you had. 
Yes. Right. So, and at this stage, you know, I, I, it was just me. I didn't have any of this, the stuff with me or the masks, but I had kind of primed her on what we would be doing. And it's, and it seemed to be going very well. And then at the very end of the conversation, she was like, okay, so just, I just want to make sure, is this, is this any kind of like satanic worship <laughs> thing? Is that, this is, it's like, no. <laughs> So, yes, you are not far off in thinking that people thought that because they really did. But no. It's one of those D&D satanic cult rituals, you know, that they do with the Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Yeah, I got that question. I had a police officer pull over at one point and ask me. uh, This one I was, I had to actually hear, wait, I'll pause those stories. I have great (laughs) stories about what people thought we were doing, but I should probably tell you what we were actually doing. Right, right. So the question uh, that I spent my time as a graduate student at the UW working on was why are crows so interested in their dead? Mm-hmm. What, how does that manifest and why are they doing it? <laughs> my first experiment was based off of a previous study that had been done on California scrub jays, which are jays are in the Corvidae family. Right. And they found that jays had a pretty strong response to dead jays, and they hypothesized and seemed to get support for this idea that maybe this is kind of an extension of anti-predator behaviors, because how they responded to dead jays seemed pretty similar, actually, to how they responded to predators. So we wanted to follow that up with crows, because crows likewise seem to, to display really strong reactions to their dead. But we wanted to narrow in and be a little bit more specific and ask kind of, okay, so if it is an extension of anti-predator behaviors, are they maybe learning something that is useful to them? And so we asked if crows might use these so-called funerals to learn about new places, dangerous places. So if they see a dead crow in a particular area, do they sort of take a mental note and are like, ooh, got to be more careful here or, or not? And then could they maybe be learning new predators, specifically people? Uh, And the reason we picked people is because people are a really interesting element in in the crow world because we fall on such a spectrum of attitudes and behaviors, right? Like when a crow sees a red-tailed hawk, it can pretty reliably predict that they're not going to be friends. <laughs> but people, people can kind of go any number of ways. They can turn out to just completely ignore them and be sort of these neutral figures. They can be really benevolent and offer them food and, and want to sort of forge this relationship. Or they can be sort of malicious and even lethal. Right. And so asking that question with people is an interesting one because crows really do have this moment where they sort of make an impression of somebody that then you can measure when they encounter that person in the future. Which I think is really interesting, too, when you think about animal behavior in response to people, where there are a lot of animals that just will not necessarily learn to mediate their response to people, whereas more social animals, like, say, the early ancestor to dogs, this wolf-like ancestor learned, like, hey, I can actually kind of go get close to some humans and they'll actually feed me and they're actually good for me. So it is it's always fascinating to me how some animals, maybe the most simple examples like a housefly is never going to learn to be cool around a human <laughs> like they um but then you start to get more intelligent animals like dogs but also 
birds and they start to kind of mediate their response. Like, actually, if I don't always run away, if I don't always just automatically flee, I may actually gain an advantage. Yeah. And I think that comparison between crows and dogs is a really interesting one because both of those animals have have really shown this sort of co-evolution with people where there's been this very clear um, evolutionary give and take where we have really shaped them right. and vice versa. So getting back to our question of, you know, what are these funerals for? Is it that they're an opportunity to learn about danger? And here are two specific things we can look to, uh, dangerous places and dangerous people. And so the way that we actually tested that was by going throughout the Seattle, you know, the city of Seattle, greater Seattle area, and identifying individual breeding pairs. So we did this study all through the spring and summer. And so we would identify a nest and then we would sort of establish our experimental site of certain distance away from the nest tree. And we would start to feed them. Uh, And so what that allowed us to do is over the course of three days, we could get them used to coming to a place for food. And that gave us a baseline of like, when we put, you know, our our Cheeto peanut combo down, how quickly do they come? Cheetos were key because as it turns out, uh, you know, crows like peanuts, but they don't necessarily love them. And not every crow likes them, but every crow likes Cheetos. <laughs> and so that was kind of early stages. We used bread and then I couldn't use bread because the goals would come in and they would literally eat an entire loaf of bread before the oh, crows gosh. would even show up. So I couldn't use bread. And then I switched to peanuts, but it was just taking forever for the crows to come. So then I finally like would put out my big handful of peanuts and then I would just like, you know, salt bay a little like (laughs) Cheetos on top. And then crows would come like that. (laughs) What's their their favorite Cheetos flavor? Just original classic? Yeah, I just did original classic. (laughs) I I didn't want to get too wild with any kind of seasonings. But that gave us a baseline of of how quickly do crows come down to the food. And then on the fourth day, we would introduce our our funeral element. There was actually a few things we tested, but the most relevant one to this conversation is a masked person holding a dead crow. And the reason that we use those sort of, you know, uncanny valley style masks where they're very sort of human-like but off Right. They kind of look like a Michael Myers mask where it's like, because like the Michael Myers mask was just like, I think a cast of like Will Shatner's face, but like with slightly more flesh colored because like Michael Myers mask was sort of a gray color, but your masks are slightly more realistic, but it's still very creepy (laughs) to look at. It's very creepy. And the, the reason for that is, so originally in the, so there was a facial recognition specific study that was done um, out of the UW and out of the lab that I eventually became a graduate student. That study probably happened maybe five years before I joined the lab. And for that study where they were just asking, can crows recognize people? Right. Uh, they originally started with these sort of cartoonish political masks. And they got some very reasonable criticism that, well, of course, crows are going to remember that. That's so different than a normal human's face. Like you're really sort of giving them an edge by using these very exaggerated masks. So to um, address that, John Marsliff, who's the, who was my PI and who ran that facial recognition study, had an actual costume maker come in and take molds of mm. real people's faces So when I go out there and I told my volunteer, you know, today you're going to be Linda, tomorrow you're going to be Vivian. People are always like, ha ha, LOL, you named your masks. And I'm like, 
no, Linda's a real person. That's really her face. (laughs) We stole her face. We stole her face. And so the reason that the masks look so creepy is because it really looks like you cut somebody's face off and are just wearing it. But that's the idea, right? That's how you make it realistic. And fortunately, because crows don't have the same kind of frame of reference for, you know, Mike Myers, wait, Michael Myers. Michael. They're different. Michael Myers. <laughs> Not both, Mike scary, Myers. both scary. Both <laughs> scary. Uh, because they don't have that frame of reference, like they're not going to be like scared. They're just they might think like mm, that person looks a little, you know, off. off. Or maybe they don't notice it at all. Hopefully the latter. But they're certainly a much better approximation for a human face than those sort of cartoonish masks right. you get at you know spirit Halloween store. <laughs> right, and you don't want to train them on a real person, right? Because first of all, it's harder to control, like for facial expression. Also, the crows will harass that person for the rest of their life. Those are two excellent reasons, <laughs> and then the third is you know if you're going to do a long term study where you want to expose them to the same face over and over and over again, if you're using a real person, right. that's a lot of pressure. You're going to the- need to steal their face. Right. Right. Like, you know, you can't ask somebody to quit their job and their life to come participate in a crow study for the next 10 years. They had uh, Aria Stark in that study. Would have been perfect. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so that's why we use mass people to hold our dead crows. And so that sort of establishes the, like, crows are used to coming to a place to get fed. One of these days they show up and like, oh, no, there's a person there holding a dead crow. So kind of step one from a data collection perspective or step two is what does that moment look like? How many crows show up? What kinds of sounds are they making? Uh, How long do they stick around for? Do they call the police? (laughs) Do they call the police? Yeah, all those different kinds of questions. And then for the next three days, we reverted back to putting the food out. So that's our first moment to look at, do they seem to be making any kind of mental note about this place? Because if the answer is no, then we would expect it to just be business as usual. Next day, they see those Cheetos and they're like, all right, sweet. Food time, come down, right? right. And we wouldn't expect there to be any change. Right. There was just a brutal murder here the other day, but hey, Cheetos. <laughs> but hey, Cheetos, exactly. <laughs> We're going to just come down just as quickly as we had been over the course of those first three days. And then the kind of second big test was if they see that same mass person again, maybe a week later, only now, you know, they're not holding a dead crow. Are they going to just ignore them like any other schmell on the street or are they going to freak out? Right. And we found that the answer to both of those questions was yes, they do show more wariness after these events in those areas, even without that person or the dead crow around. And the majority of birds in our study, uh, if they saw that person again, would display behaviors consistent with how they respond to threats. Like they would dive bomb them and alarm call. They would follow them. Uh, And we obviously did a lot of controls to kind of make sure that, you know, as, as one does in science, to make sure that they're not inherently afraid of these masks, that they don't inherently start not coming to food after periods of time. Right, like if Michael Myers doesn't hold up a dead crow to them but only feeds them Cheetos, they're not going to freak out. It's like, they're hey, not going to cool. freak out. 
Nope. And I did that. I literally did that experiment. So I can say that for, <laughs> for sure. If Michael Myers or like creepy clowns, we're only scared of them because we associate that kind of thing with like, oh, then they stab us. But if they just offer us Cheetos all the time and they're pretty chill, you know, we're not going to uh, yes. we're not going to be scared of them. And the same thing, the same thing with crows, it seems, which is really excellent. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah. I love that crows have good horror movie survival instincts. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you watch a horror movie, a lot of the characters in a horror movie just have the worst instincts. Like, oh, I saw a man wearing like a leather face uh, maybe I follow him, <laughs> you know, just like, oh, there's, there's someone covered in blood. I'll go down the stairs into the basement to see what they're up to. Like, no, these crows, right. like these. I won't are... call for any reinforcements right. or anything like that. I'm just going to go. Yeah. No, crows are, are very adept at calling for reinforcements when they think something nefarious is afoot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that is what we're able to show. So the, visually the kind of setup for this just so your listeners can picture it a little better is so my role I, I was lucky in that I I never was the target so I was kind of the the nice benevolent feeder I would I would show up with my little clipboard and my camera on a tripod and I would put the food out so at first they'd see me in that context were you wearing a mask for that as well or I wasn't I was just myself for that oh, cool so like now they're like hey it's Kaylee like she's friend of crows <laughs> it is yes it is that's how I met my best crow friend go actually go the crow I, yep because I I couldn't you know I didn't engage in any supplementary feeding when the experiment was going on like I could only feed them in that context but then once it was done then right. we could be you know yeah. all St once the study is over is it ethical to become friends with your participants if the participant is a crow <laughs> yes the answer is yes <laughs> and I did <laughs> Um, so I was always kind of standing there, you know, with my, my camera and my clipboard, and then I would have volunteers come and they would be, you know, my, my sort of like murderers, <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> they'd put the masks on and all of that. And just as a way of sort of keeping and collecting data, even just as it related to how quickly the crows would come to the food outside of, you know, the main funeral day, I, I always had that tripod. And that seemed to be the thing that really caught a lot of people's attention, actually. So, you know, we, we ran into a fair number of shenanigans during the, you know, funeral experiments where we would have upset homeowners. I mean, you, uh, you guys were wearing like serial killer masks holding up dead crows while... But we had the sign, Katie. As I, you said, we had those signs. Yeah, I mean, if, <laughs> if someone's like has like a big bloody knife and like a crazy clown mask, but they have a sign like, do not be alarmed, clown study, I'll instantly relax. It'll be fine. Of course, of course. Yeah, no, I, I can't blame you. Uh, and, you know, I couldn't, I didn't blame people at the time either. I think um, people absolutely have a right to be curious uh, and aware. Did you ever get the cops called on you? I did uh, frequently, actually. Yeah. And they um, eventually they would kind of be like, are you with the UW? Are you one of those UW crew people? And I'd be like, yep. And they would just sort of take my name. And and there was a few times my favorite was I was doing one of these near Magnuson Park, which is a, a pretty big park in Seattle, well known. And again, like I have my, my volunteer and this particular volunteer got me in the trouble the most because <laughs> Joel, he, he was a sweetheart. He actually ended up taking a taxidermy class and being my main taxidermist for the rest of my studies. It was invaluable. 
but he's like six, like nine. He's just a huge <laughs> dude. Uh, and he, he really likes, or at the time he would wear like kind of mostly black and camo. Mm-hmm. And so seeing him in one of those masks really freaked people out. And I remember we were doing one of these studies near Magnuson and this old older woman came up to me and she was like, you know, demanding to know, what are you doing? <laughs> and so I explained, you know, I'm, I'm a researcher with UW. We're doing this experiment. And that was one of the um, tests that involved also a stuffed red-tailed hawk. So there was a red-tailed hawk on the ground, not far just from Joel. Just all sorts of dead birds lying just around. All, well, <laughs> the hawks actually were like lifelike mounts. Oh, um, I see. So they're, yeah, they're even more sort of conspicuous because they're kind of standing right, up tall. Right, right. And so I'm, I'm pointing all of this stuff out. And I, and I have my clipboard. It's full of data. You know, I, we've got our signs on. I have a tripod. And I finished explaining it to her and she goes, I don't believe you. I'm calling the cops. <laughs> it's just like, wow, what an elaborate ruse. Can you mm. imagine mm. if we had just made all of that up? And so, you know, it was it was never a big deal. I mean, like, do you think like Satanists really have like a printed out Excel spreadsheet? Like, is exactly. that you know I, mean, I mean, I guess. Maybe. I, Look, I, I think that, you know, I think the actual Church of Satan is pretty, pretty chill. So, like, uh-huh. there's like yeah. an actual Church of Satan and they're mostly, their thing is uh, like, I think, religious freedom. Yeah, freedom freedom of speech. Yeah. yeah. And just making sure that. And then I'm sure there are like actual practicing occultists who, uh, who like a spreadsheet. So I don't want to <laughs> generalize, but I think. Typically, I don't I don't know. I mean, like, write to me if you're into the occult and like you like to be organized and you have spreadsheets and data and you run QQ plots. Like, let me know if that's the whole thing in, in the <laughs> occult. Let me know, too, Katie, if you find that just so I can sort of, you know, craft this description more accurately. Yeah, <laughs> we had a lot of sort of funny run ins and and I but I do like to always sort of take a moment to appreciate that. You know, for me, those stories of being out in the field and having the cops called and them coming and asking a few questions is something that, you know, was never sort of threatening and I can laugh about now. Right. But recognizing that that's absolutely not true for a lot of people, yeah, uh, particularly people of color. And that really sucks. It sucks for me to imagine that my whiteness made doing this research possible yeah. in a way that I might not have otherwise. And so I like to laugh about these stories, but... I am careful. I try and be careful of recognizing that there's lots of context where those stories wouldn't be funny at all. And yeah. that's something we need to work on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's the Black Birders movement that I definitely encourage people to check out on Twitter because uh, in the wake of the Central Park incident where a Black Birder, Christian Cooper, was threatened by this white lady who said that she would call the cops on him and specifically tell them that he's black. She was clearly using the cops to threaten his safety and intimidate him uh, just because he asked her to put her dog on a leash. Another thing, don't have your dogs off leash, guys, because that's really bad for birds. Please. Um, Or cats. (laughs) Or cats, yeah. Cats are bad, too. They like to eat birds. Uh, Just... Keep your keep your pets. Uh, I love cats and dogs, but not great for birds. So keep them in check there. And this guy was just asking her to put her dog on leash, and she called the cops on him instead. Which, as we know in this country, is an actual can threaten your life if you are a person of color. So I think that 
Yeah, it is. It is interesting where it's like it does. It's like it's sort of a you guys can get away with a lot of occult seeming stuff through through privilege and warranted a number of of pretty strange and funny questions from occult to uh, Pokemon Go and everything in between there. People will make up all kinds of stories when they see a person with a camera. And they're just judging you based on the fact that you have a camera. There are people in masks holding dead crows. It's very judgmental. It's so judgmental. <laughs> I don't I don't know where people get off with this kind of stuff. <laughs> Let's play another round of auditory guess that Corvid. Who do you suppose this is? That's a carrion crow from the Wetherall Animal Rescue in the UK saying, Hello! When we return, we're going to find out how smart corvids really are. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. If I told you this was a crow call, <laughs> would you believe me? Well, it certainly is, but it's no common crow or carrion crow. It's the call of a new Caledonian crow who happened to have quite a few tricks up their sleeves or feathers. So... We talked about your what it's like to have done your crow funeral research and how it showed that they were able to learn 
people's faces. We already knew that, but they were also able to identify those faces as being dangerous. Like they, they responded differently. If you were holding up the dead crow, they would freak out. They were like, this person is potentially dangerous. And they also treated the location as a potential danger and were more careful next time they came by. Even the allure of Cheetos was not enough to get them to come by without some caution. Yeah, and that and that was an important distinction because it would have actually been awesome if um, the funeral event was enough to get them to be like, nope, I'm out of here. No peanuts or Cheetos for me. <laughs> that would have lended itself to a really easy and useful management tool. If mm-hmm. there are, if there were situations, say, you know, where they've been depredating on a sensitive species, if we could just hang one of these for a half an hour and take it down and the crows stop coming by, that would be awesome. If scarecrows really worked, I don't think, uh, I think we would have solved that problem a long time ago. <laughs> that is absolutely true. So yeah, it wasn't enough to get them to completely evacuate, but they were cautious. Yeah. Do you think that they can actually mourn their dead or is it purely a survival instinct or is that... Is even that distinction sort of fuzzy? Because it, it makes me wonder, like, if our original, like, our mourning and our fear of death and our sort of ritual around death has something to do with self-preservation that gets extended into sort of these deep emotional places. So just from from your sort of observations, like, do you think crows have, like, a a sense of death and a sense of mourning? Or do you think it is that distinction hard to make at this point? I don't know. And I'm really comfortable not knowing the answer to that question. I think that we can be very confident that crows use dead crows as a cue of risk and as a learning opportunity. And I think it makes absolute sense that for animals that do have really more ritualistic and more emotionally invested responses, that that might have been the impetus, right? Because we didn't go from nothing to, you know, a New Orleans funeral. There was a lot in between there. (laughs) Right, right. And so so it makes sense that that first kind of attentiveness might come from a place of self-preservation. But when we look at crows, I mean, these are incredibly social animals. They're incredibly intelligent animals. When we look at their brains, there's nothing we can point to to say, well, see here, they're missing this. This is why they <laughs> couldn't have the emotional intelligence right. of, a, of a primate or a dolphin or a human. Yeah. They're just missing um, a chunk of brain. Right. They're just that. There's just <laughs> and empty that's just, there. It's also just not how <laughs> brains work in general. Like you don't like you can literally have a chunk of your brain taken out and your brain is so it's called neuroplasticity that your brain can reorganize itself that you actually regain some of the abilities in certain cases not always like but you can actually regain abilities that are literally carved out of your brain because it is a very complex system in terms of evolution it's true like as you get like you you do get like more additions onto your brain like you get a prefrontal cortex which is very different from just having like, you know, a very simple brainstem, pons, medulla, oblongata kind of setup. But it is, once you start to get to be like a crow or a human and your brain gets more and more complex and you do start to get the like these more um, kind of like integrated processes, it, it is hard to just be like, ah, see, the crow, the crow brain is smaller than a human, so it, it has to be dumb. It's just like our brain is smaller than... Um, like a blue whale. Blue whales have a big brain. Just by volume, it's a huge... I feel like a blue whale's brain is probably about as big as, like, 
a child, yeah, <laughs> a whole human child. But you know, to say that a blue whale is therefore much smarter than us is just kind of faulty reasoning. It's all about relativity, right? Um, exactly. And and humans and and dolphins and crows have a much bigger brain size relative to our body size than right. we would expect. So yeah, so you know, crow brains for all of the ways that they are different. There isn't anything where we can say, oh, and the fact that they're different in this way means that they don't possess any kind of emotional intelligence. And at the same time, you know, like I said, these are incredibly social animals. They forge really long-term relationships with one another. I can see how it would absolutely be valuable and adaptive to have emotional commitments to their partners and to their flock mates. At the same time, though, you know, having a, a deep emotional investment, you know, we, we, I always start by sort of asking what would be the, the adaptive value of that? And going into a long period of mourning, you know, if you were a, a female, for example, you've just lost your mate and you go into a long period of mourning that precludes you from being able to take a new partner and breed, that's probably not super helpful to you, right? Or mourning your lost, you know, kids for the season. If it's early enough that you could attempt to remate and lay another clutch, probably not super useful to spend a bunch of time being super bummed out. So that's why I'm kind of in this spot where, you know, I don't know what they're thinking, but um, I'm totally open to uh, the possibility that we learn that crows are much more emotionally aware than, than we currently understand about them. To that point, I want to talk about some of the surprising ways that corvids show intelligence, because I think we have this sense of like, ah, uh, you know, like humans were the most intelligent, and then like primates are really, really smart. And then maybe after that, like dolphins, and then maybe parrots, like Alex the parrot was pretty smart. I think that people don't realize how incredibly, almost spookily intelligent corvids can be. One of the things that like we use as sort of this very rough measure of intelligence is tool use because like that requires very complicated cognition to be able to pick up a thing and use it for another task. Like it just requires so many kind of parallel processing systems in your brain that it, it indicates some amount of uh, a higher cognition. New Caledonian crows are really interesting. I think we've talked about them on the podcast before, but they look very much like an American crow. They are found in New Caledonia, which is an archipelago in the Southwest Pacific Ocean. I mean, maybe this is a question for you. Do you know, like, if there's a way to be able to distinguish visually a New Caledonian crow from an American crow? I do. So <laughs> um, New Caledonian crows look like they're smiling. Mm. And the Aww. reason for that is actually very much tied to their tool use. They have this curve to their bill that gives the, the bottom part of the bill, which is called the lower mandible, sort of this like a little bit chonkier appearance. Mm -hmm. And it kind of curves up. Oh. And that what gives them, that's what gives them their sort of smiley appearance. And the reason that their bill has that particular shape is actually that it's really important in allowing them the dexterity that they need right. to manufacture tools. Gives them a set of pliers on their face. I yeah, wish my face so, was pliers. Exactly. <laughs> if you could, like, if you had pliers on your face, you would also be grinning all the time. Or maybe you'd be horrified. I'm not sure. But crows are very happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And these new Caledonian crows, like, they love to eat grubs and they will use sticks and little, any stick like tool that they can find to get 
grubs out of wood. And now the like this easiest way that they do this is they just take sort of a straight stick, they put it in a hole, and the grubs will instinctively bite at this intrusion, and then they fish it out like catching a fish on a hook because the grub is biting down and they pull it out. But that doesn't always work in every circumstance that they uh, are looking for grubs. Like the crows will actually take one of these sticks and modify it so that it works as a better grub extraction tool and can fit into different spaces and can pick them up more effectively. So they use very, like you mentioned with uh, their beaks, I didn't know it made them look like they were smiling and that's like the reason that's so cool. But yeah, they will use those beaks to do this very precise ripping, cutting, and bending techniques on the stick to create basically these like custom tools to be able to fish out grubs, which I think we had previously only seen this in like there there was Betty, the captive New Caledonian crow. So we had seen that in captivity, but it was only relatively recently that we saw that they were also doing this in the wild, which is really exciting because like animals in captivity will behave differently than their counterparts in the wild. So to find out that they actually do it in the wild, just like all these crows just making making their little hooks and tools and getting the grubs, that's really cool. It is, yeah. And it's so so just to give a little bit more background on Betty since you brought her up. So Betty was, like you said, she was a wild caught New Caledonian crow. And we had known prior to Betty that New Caledonian crows make tools. And the one we were most familiar with was they'll shear off the edges of pandanus leaves. And the pandanus plant is a really rigid leaf. Picture kind of like like an aloe leaf. It's it's not that Mm -hmm. thick, but picture something rigid and serrated Mm -hmm. on the edge. And so they'll shave off little, you know, the, the sides of them. And then they'll, like you say, they'll kind of shave them down till they're the right width and length. And then they'll stick those in and let the grubs grab. But our challenge as um, animal behaviorists is there's a lot of things animals do that can look on its surface really sophisticated, but isn't necessarily guided cognitively. Right. Right. Like there's a lot of ways, like ants are a great example. Ants did not go and get degrees in engineering school and yet they can build bridges. And it's not because they understand physics. It's because each one executes a very simple job. And when you put that together, you get something sophisticated. Right. Like at, at the most uh, base examples, there's this, I think it's a simul, but it's this very, very tiny organism that actually creates like each of them come together to create a a slug, like a multi-unit slug that's made out of a bunch of individuals. And then it create like when they're on a hostile environment, this slug will spontaneously form uh, a stem that reaches up like a platform. And the ones at the very top are these spores that can then like basically get sent off to a better environment. And so it seems like they are planning this out like, okay, we're in a bad spot right now. We will form this collective and then create this stem and then like send off like the survivors like astronauts off to a better place and it seems like oh they're really altruistic and planning no it's all it's basically piling on behavior that ends up turning into what looks like this very complex thing and it's like it, it really is every one of them for itself trying to pile on the other one and similar to like how piranhas, it's like, oh, they like to take turns eating carrion. No, they just 
are all kind of like piling on. And once one of them gets a mouthful of food, they'll pull back to eat the food and get pushed out of the way by another piranha who also wants to eat the food. So it's like intelligent behavior can just be crowd behavior that's like uh, totally self-driven, not altruistic at all, not no forethought at all, just a little what it looks like automaton doing a single behavior. But then when you get a bunch of them together, or and then you can kind of extrapolate that to an actual animal, like just doing trial and error over and over again. But it's just one behavior that they repeat and repeat and repeat. But it's not exactly. they're not really thinking it through. Exactly. So the the experiment with Betty was, OK, how much does she really understand why the tool she needs works? So what they presented Betty, and they did this experiment in pairs. So there was Betty and there was actually a second bird in the cage with her. And they would give them this little cylinder. And at the bottom of the cylinder was a little bucket of food. And it's too far down and too narrow for the crows to actually stick their heads in and pick up the bucket. So they presented them with two tool options. One was a hook. And one was a straight piece of wire. And and, um, this was the first time that Betty and her cage mate as far as I know, had been presented with those particular materials. Mm -hmm. And so clearly the goal is, can they assess that the correct tool for that job is the hook? Right. Unfortunately for the Betty and the researchers uh, at the time or initially, her cage mate picked up the hook and then flew away and was like, I don't want to do this stupid experiment. I'm going to (laughs) go sit in the corner with my hook. And so the researchers, I'm sure, are like, ah, (laughs) Like, these girls are always kind of screwing up our experiments, and now, you know, what are we going to do? And poor Betty, she's hungry, and so she has this wire, and there's a great video, you you can Google it, and she's poking at the food at the bottom, and it's not working. Right. And then she sort of takes her hook, and she pins it to the bottom of the cylinder, and she starts wrapping it around, and boop, up pups Betty with a hook that she has just spontaneously made. Right, which was not even what the study was about because they just not wanted, even what the... they wanted to see if they could distinguish, <laughs> like if they could see like, okay, the straight one doesn't work. I have to use the hook. They weren't looking to see if they'd make their own hook. They and Betty's like, hold, exactly. hold my bird seed. <laughs> exactly. So then she fishes down in there and she pulls out the bucket. And like you said, we were like, oh my God. Not only does she get it, but she actually spontaneously made it. But then, as you said, more recently, we put little backpacks with cameras on New Caledonian crows and we sent them off and we realized they freaking make hooks all the time. (laughs) And I just want to take a moment because this is really significant. (laughs) So when it comes to tools and animals, Mm -hmm. the first thing to understand is that, yes, Using tools is rare. Less than 1% of all of the animals on planet Earth use tools. However, that 1% comprises a huge diversity of organisms. So you have animals like chimpanzees and people, but you also have like fish. Right. (laughs) There's a couple of and sea otters, animals that, you know, are are using an object for an, you know, a, a sort of a novel purpose to benefit them. Right. And like woodpecker finches are. I, I don't want to be mean to them, but an arguably much less intelligent bird that also uses a twig or a cactus spine to basically impale a grub. But there's no evidence that shows that they really fully understand like how the tool works other than just like I take this thing, I stick it in, I get a thing out. Um, exactly. And again, that's sort of more 
like what we're talking about earlier, where, I mean, rats are pretty intelligent, but you can train them to press a lever and receive some reward. That doesn't necessarily mean that they understand the, the mechanics of a lever, like how that lever works. Similarly, you can, we've studied chimpanzees and we see that they actually make a pretty complex physics calculation when they are using a tool like to reach something. But when we've tested them to, to see if they have an understanding of math, absolutely not. They do not have an understanding of math. So just because they have an innate understanding of physics, like a baby, like a human baby, I keep jumping from animal to animal to animal. But <laughs> again, like a human baby actually has an innate understanding of physics. You have, you show a baby a little ball roll up to a big ball and the baby expects like the little ball to just kind of like bounce off the big ball and not move the big ball because it, it has this understanding. If you show a baby a little ball roll into a big ball and it flies away, the baby stares at it because its little mind is blown because it's like, I was not expecting that. The baby doesn't have a physics degree. The baby doesn't understand anything about conservation of momentum. The baby has an innate kind of instinctive understanding of certain physics that is sort of built into its brain, but it doesn't have an understanding, a metacognition of it. So when an animal uses a tool and shows a metacognition of it, where it's like it not only uses the tool, it understands why certain tools work and why other tools don't and like what it needs to do to modify that tool to get it to work. That's so exciting because that shows much more cognition than, you know, simply like I have a stick and when I jam the stick over and over, sometimes, yay, food time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so that's the distinction I really like to drive home to people is, yes, a very few number of species use tools. But there are, there's varying levels of understanding in terms of how those animals actually cognitively understand right. those tools. But then the next step, and the reason why New Caledonian crows have us stop dead in our tracks, are there are only two animals that make tools. And that's a huge cognitive leap, using tools and making tools. Right. And that's kind of that, um, like what you were saying, that ability to actually have the intuition of how do I modify something for a very specific task, that is much more challenging. And, and chimpanzees do it, right? And the two animals are primates and, and the crows, right? And I, I think, I'm waiting for a primatologist to correct me on this, but I think chimpanzees are the only primates that make tools in the wild. Right. I think there's some evidence of other primates, like orangutans, being able to modify things in captive settings. They but do, I don't. Yeah. Orangutans like modify, it's not necessarily a tool. It's like they make a bed and they will modify branches to create a foundation for the bed in a kind of specific way. And I think that it starts to get like a little bit fuzzy. Like, is that an actual tool? Because they're not then using that bed to get another thing. They're just. Right. Bird birds make beds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, exactly. So it's really special that this bird, this animal that is, like you said, a dinosaur is so different from us mm -hmm. in you know, so many ways, is doing something that is incredibly unique and cognitively advanced because that is a level of insight and understanding that whew, we should all be watching our backs around the crows because <laughs> this is impressive. <laughs> Especially you because you had a whole study where you're like, hey, here's a dead crow, everybody. <laughs> See, that's why I was always the friendly human person, 
because I knew I was planning ahead. Like the crow, I was like, I am not going to be making hordes of enemies here. <laughs> There's no. going to be like a Kaiser Soze moment where they realize you were the mastermind the whole time. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but another another interesting thing, and I'm actually going to talk about the Eurasian magpie there's some research that suggests that Eurasian magpies can possibly recognize themselves in mirrors. Um, and so this is a whole interesting thing that I have very complex opinions about. It's the mirror test. And this is the test where you basically plunk something down in front of a mirror and you're like, okay, does this animal recognize itself in the mirror? And you will put, generally how it's done is like you put a dot or a mark on the animal without them knowing, like they're either like sort of sedated or you do it stealthily so they don't know you've put something on them and you have a control group where you have, you've put a dot on them or something but it's invisible so it's like it's not the feeling of the dot and or mark and then you put them in front of a mirror and then you see if they like look in the mirror and they see the mark in the mirror and then recognize, oh, that's on me, and then try to remove it. I, I mean, I'll, I'll get in more about my opinions about this test later, but it's an interesting kind of human-centric way of thinking about metacognition. Like, we recognize ourselves, we see ourselves in the mirror, we recognize that as us, and then therefore, you know, we have a self-awareness, which I think it may be a little more complex than that. But in terms of animals who have quote-unquote passed the mirror test, includes obviously humans, chimpanzees, dolphins, and elephants. There's a little bit of fuzziness here because you'll have some individuals that do it, and then but then you try other other animals in the same species and then they won't do it. So it's kind of a from individual to individual. But when studied, Eurasian magpies also seem to pass this test. So when colorful stickers are put on their throats and in the same setup that I described before, and they see themselves in the mirror, they scratched at their necks to try to remove the stickers, which indicates that they have some awareness of like they're having some control over their body and then recognizing it in the mirror. But one thing that I think is interesting to me about this is we've tested it in a lot of like very social animals, like very highly socially, emotionally intelligent animals like uh, chimpanzees, elephants, dolphins, and, and then these magpies. Like they're all very socially minded. I wonder your opinion on on this test. And because I think sometimes people jump to the conclusion that, oh, if they can recognize themselves in the mirror, they have this concept of self. Whereas like how... How much of it is them recognizing themselves in the mirror? And how much of it is an under, just a simple understanding of like the physics of a reflection? How much of it is like a self-awareness, do you think? Or is there, because I'm, I'm curious to know if there have been studies to see like how they respond, not to a mirror, but just to like a, one of their uh, cohorts, like another bird with that mark in the same place as their own. Like, do they just have very advanced like mirror neurons where they like they think that the image is another bird but then they're so sympathetic to that they're like oh I better check my neck too kind of thing so I was wondering like what your opinion is on all of this so I um <laughs> I I'm with you Katie in that uh, people I often find myself uh, confronted with people who are really excited about the mirror test who are really excited that these Eurasian magpies passed and I always feel like the Debbie Downer being like, <laughs> mm, 
because number one, because when we, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> when we say they pass, we mean that two. There was two birds <laughs> that passed the mirror test. It's not a great sample size. Genius birds. <laughs> Genius birds. And then they actually ended up trying to repeat this study in jackdaws, and they did it the exact same ways. And jackdaws are another corvid, you know, they're another bird in the corvid family. Mm -hmm. They used to be in the corvus genus, but we just kicked them out. <laughs> and they did the exact same studies. And in those birds, even the control birds picked up on the, the spots, mm -hmm. which suggests that maybe those magpies had a little bit more tactile sensory awareness right. of these than, than it showed. We've also done this study mirror tests in New Caledonian crows, and New Caledonian crows are terrible at it. Parrots are terrible at it. Anybody mm -hmm. who in the springtime has had a crow or a raven attacking their side mirror in their car or their, <laughs> the windows in their house probably are very familiar with the fact that right. by and large, these birds are actually really bad at it. Yeah. But what's really interesting and gets at one of the questions you asked is new, it's not, at least in New Caledonian crows, because they don't understand mirrors conceptually. So New Caledonian crows can use mirrors to understand that something they see in a mirror is actually happening behind them. Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. Right? So they seem to understand the properties of a mirror. So maybe it is just a very sort of like anthrocentric, you know, because we express self-directed behaviors, you know, trying to look. So the, the main things that when we put animals in front of mirrors, the, the themes we see in terms of self-directed behaviors are we want to look at our mouths and we want to look at our genitals. It's <laughs> kind of the two areas that we, that we have a hard time <laughs> investigating otherwise. And that's what dolphins do. That's what primates do. That's what Maybe that's do. what's going on with all these Zoom call shenanigans. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, birds only have the one hole and it's covered with feathers generally and yeah. their mouths aren't that exciting. So, but, you know, maybe they just aren't that interested in those self-directed behaviors. Right. But there was a study that just came out a few weeks ago that took a very different approach to try and tease out consciousness. They went right to the source. They went right to the brain to look at how the brain responded to these, these different kinds of scenarios they were getting at. And based on the timing of when these neurons were firing, they were able to pretty convincingly show that they weren't just responding in kind of an automatic way. When they're in front of a mirror? Or... No, so this, this left the mirror completely out of it. It had them trained so that they knew if they saw lights to peck. Okay. And then they gave them a series where the lights were sometimes really faint and sometimes really bright. And they looked at what their brains were doing when they were presented with these faint lights. And based on kind of the timing of, of when the neurons fired and whether or not they they fired, they were able to ascertain that actually they were basically showing what we call a subjective consciousness. They were really sort of like, they were experiencing the mm. brightness of light, mm -hmm. right? In a way that suggested a, a, a conscious appreciation of it and mm. not just like a reactionary appreciation of it. Right. It was a pretty complex study. I'm hoping to write about it for my blog. I've reached out to the folks that ran it. Because I tell you what, I read that study like twice and so much of it just went right over my head. Yeah, right? I've already got like 500 questions. <laughs> yeah, it. I, right. It's, it's a complicated study. For the listeners, I think uh, one thing to point out is that you can have an organism react to light like a stimulus. Like you can have a nematode, which is as close to 
having no brain as you can get almost with an animal. Uh, and a nematode will react to light. It has a very, very primitive eye spot that can react to light and dark, and, and it will react light. That doesn't mean it experiences the light. When you look, you know, any one of us like looks at outside at the light or you, you uh, look at a TV screen and you see these lights, you have all these sort of automated reaction to the light where your pupil constricts, but you also have a conscious un experience of light. And quantifying that in animals is really, really hard because <laughs> we don't even know how to quantify consciousness in humans yet other than just being assured that another person is saying like, hey, I, I do experience seeing the light and you just got to trust them because you can't get inside their head. So it is really interesting. I, I'm, I'm really interested to, to see more about this study because like being able to show that like there are parts of the brain that light up basic when you're when you're having sort of a not just an immediate response but an actual sort of experience of like a of the qualia is like yeah pretty crazy yeah yeah so so that's probably going to be a much better bet than the mirror test right at addressing consciousness in birds because we just have such a mixed bag of results with these mirror tests and you know maybe it's just not a relevant way for these animal you know right. for every animal to demonstrate that it has a sense of self. It's, it's something where I think some of these tests that like we're trying to see whether an animal is intelligent or conscious is really very human egocentric. Like we're, we're just so like, oh, it's gotta be, it's gotta think like a human to have that self-awareness. And I'm not sure that's true. Yeah, and that is definitely our challenge, right? As objective as we try and be as scientists, we are ultimately, you know, limited by our our own lens and our imaginations for how we can ask questions and our imaginations are very much sort of influenced by our humanness and uh, and culturally too right so how somebody in one part of the world and from one culture may approach that question might be really different than somebody else which is a a great reason to want to really expand um the kinds of representations in science because uh being able to to bring a lot of different styles of thinking into the room is, is really helpful because collectively, you know, we, we need that because yeah. we are already limited as people. <laughs> Absolutely. And also just, uh, this is another thing I like to talk about on the show is looking into cultural history and not having a sort of snobbery of like, oh, you know, as scientists, we can never listen to um, sort of like folklore or other cultures because the, that's unscientific. It's like, well, it may not be enough for a study, but when you actually look into things like anecdotal observations of birds of prey, like in Australia, picking up sticks and setting fires, we don't have, we have, I don't think there's been a, a definitive study proving that yet. But if we had just ignored Aboriginal observations and gone like, no, there's no way a bird would be smart enough to set fire like or intentionally spread fire, then we may not have opened up this whole avenue of research of like, hey, actually, there's a chance that these birds are intentionally or not spreading fire by picking up twigs from an, a, a wildfire somewhere else and then spreading it to somewhere else and then reaping the rewards by chasing all the, the prey item that are fleeing. And so I think, yeah, definitely when we close our ears and eyes to other perspectives, other human perspectives, we're really 
shooting ourselves in the foot when it comes to scientific research. And I say that as a podcaster who doesn't do research, <laughs> scolding no, all you scientists. <laughs> it's absolutely true. And, you know, it's very relevant to the funeral stuff. We mm-hmm. were, you know, what we were doing was asking very specific novel questions. But the idea that Corbett's respond strongly to their dead Whew, we were absolutely not even close <laughs> to the first people to to discuss that. You can find stories about it in the Quran, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, human beings as as a species collectively have been very aware of this, uh, and it, it's you know it's a pretty harmful, very colonialist approach to ignore traditional knowledge and then claim discovery. Right. We repeat things that have been around for years. So right. it's really important for us to, to listen to those sources of traditional knowledge and to, you know, give them credit as amazing naturalists and as really important sources of information when there is that kind of overlap between that cultural knowledge and then when it meets how we maybe scientifically want to parse a particular question. We are always using old assumptions and old information that we have in order to build the questions that we can actually scientifically quantify. So it's, why would we ignore any body of knowledge just because, oh, well, this hasn't, you know, this isn't like scientific. It's like, well, no, but neither is uh, a bunch of other assumptions that we make about nature that hasn't been parsed and picked apart by actual experimentations and actual research observations. It makes me think about, too, like our cultural understanding of crows and ravens and other corvids, because I think we have this sense of them, oh, they're kind of spooky and they're bad omens. And that's been such a prominent thing, like, you know, especially in the West, like this idea that like crows and ravens are are omens or are or evil or occult, like people thinking that you're doing some occult business because I mean to be fair having a dead crow is a little little sus little suspect (laughs) but it it is when you actually look into it uh there are that is not the universal cultural depiction of crows or ravens at all in fact in a lot of cultures they are seen as they can be highly intelligent they can be like in myths like as like highly intelligent like tricksters or or thinkers They can be, um, you know, actually the opposite, like good omens, signs of uh, abundance and of of good luck. It's not necessarily separated by like region because like corvids are a cosmopolitan species are found all over the world. You know, from China to ancient Celtic culture, crows uh, were actually good. Like they were good omens. They weren't necessarily negative. You know, I think obviously we we appreciate crows now, and I think they're they're not as maligned uh, these days as they used to be. But it is something to consider when it's like you know you imagine if we had only relied on one cultural understanding of crows, un, an unchanging idea that they're that they're bad and evil, like we would never find out how intelligent and and amazing and emotionally deep that they are. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things about crows is um, because of their proximity to us and their cosmopolitanness, they are really incorporated into the mythology and the creation stories of, of almost all peoples around the world. And it's pretty 
you know, I don't look at it as a bad thing that they have really different reputations depending on where in the world they are. I think it's a, a really interesting aspect of them. But like you mentioned, you know, in ancient Greece, they were symbols of love. In um, China, they were symbols of prophecy and luck. In Haida storytelling traditions, which is uh, a tribe in the Coast Salish region, they were, ravens were ultimate creators. Um, so it's it's just really amazing how much humans and corvids are sort of inextricably linked and the way that we've really used them to understand and tell stories about how the world came to be and, and what it means. Often when we think about our relation to animals, we think about um, domesticated animals or pets, not necessarily animals that we haven't domesticated that are not pets, you know, right? As cool as they are, as cool, any bird caretaker will tell you that ravens and crows do not make good pets. They nope. are, they're not, they are very cute. Of course, everyone would love to have a fun friend and a pet raven, but it's, they just are too, they're so strong-willed. It's like yes. they have, they have their own thing going on. They want to do their own stuff. They don't really want to, they, they're very intelligent and you think, well, then that means they can be trained. An untrainable animal is not an unintelligent animal. It's one that sees no reason to be trained. So. Exactly. Yeah. And, and crows and ravens really are, in terms of pet, pets, <laughs> are really just sort of two-year-olds kind mm -hmm. of at their most candy-hopped-up moment. Right. Uh, but that can fly <laughs> and are smarter. And never grow out of it. And have <laughs> yeah. sharp claws. And have sharp claws. So. Maybe not as much as a raptor, but, you know. <laughs> it, no, they can make you bleed. Yeah. To yeah. believe you me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, not, not good for pets. Not good for pets. The wonderful thing is it doesn't matter because wild birds are, generally speaking, very open to companionship. Yes. And it will have a few more boundaries, but those boundaries keep everybody safer. But you can still have these really wonderful and intimate relationships with wild birds where they learn to recognize you and yeah. they come visit you and they maybe even bring you presents every <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> I saw, I saw, I was, it was so funny because I was actually looking through Snopes because I was trying to find if there were some crow myths that we should debunk. And I decided not to do that, but I found this article about someone who was thought that they were getting presents from, from some, I think it was crows. Uh, mm -hmm. Like a little, some pine. Oh, was it the pop can? It was the pop lids on the, the soda can lids on the. And mm -hmm. guess who was interviewed in the article? I saw you. I was like, hey, what? Oh. Full circle. <laughs> <laughs> to find yeah. out if they were actually, uh, because the person was saying like, well, we'll leave out food for them. And like, you know, we seem to have this, they, they really are interested in what our kids are doing and, and they have this friendly relationship. And then they left these pine fronds like stuck in a, a tab like a that you'd get off of a soda can and then just like left them there and like, are they making us presents? <laughs> uh, and I think like ultimately the answer is like, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Exactly. <laughs> they definitely leave things behind in places where they're routinely fed. The question is, is it an act of gratitude or is it just that these birds are curious and right. sometimes carry things around and then leave them because something better was there that they made off right. with instead? So if you trick or treat, which I know is curtailed uh, this year because of the pandemic, but like you're not necessarily guaranteed like to be able to go trick or treat with a crow. Like they may 
leave you something or they may just yell at you. Or they may just yell at you. And I will tell you, um, I have been friends with many a crow in my time and I've I've never gotten a present. <laughs> so that's my main evidence for that it can't be gratitude. Well at least at least you didn't get a present, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. on your head, a present. Yeah, because that yeah. that can also happen. <laughs> and actually since you brought it up, I will just tell people if you want to include this. Um, to be careful, because one of the reasons it is important to make boundaries with crows is that every once in a while, you'll get one that can get really aggressive about mm. wanting to get fed, mm-hmm. and they will come and give you a tap on the head. And it's not usually enough to cause to break skin, but it is scary, and it doesn't feel <laughs> great. So that's a good reason, you know, that throwing a few peanuts here and there, yeah. totally fine, most birds. But if you see, you know, don't don't try and coax these birds into hand feeding, yeah. because once we sort of break down those you know, all of the barriers. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a hyper-aggressive crow, you can end up leading it into a situation where it will ultimately be hurt or euthanized yeah. because it's scaring people. Yeah, just just respectful boundaries. It's not, it's, it, you're not a, you're not a Disney princess who's going to like have a bunch of crows alight on your shoulders without consequence. <laughs> right, I know. I And I've tried. So, yep, <laughs> take it from me, crow expert. That is not in anyone's future. <laughs> I think that's actually a really good point because I think it is an important thing where I I, I really want to encourage people to enjoy nature and not feel afraid, like not feel like, oh, I can't interact with nature at all. Otherwise, I'm going to ruin something or I'm going to get hurt. Um, but on the other hand, it's just like, you know, just there are certain boundaries that you need to maintain. Like you, uh, in general, like, you know, don't, uh, although we talked about the Cheeto study, I wouldn't recommend necessarily going out and handing Cheetos out to crows as much as they might love it. It's not probably the healthiest thing. Kaylee only used a light sprinkle for her study, just a light seasoning. <laughs> Maybe that's something that's hard for humans to get comfortable with, just coexisting with an animal that we can't tame, that we can't use, but that can live alongside us and be friendly with us, but we can't own. And I think we just have to like, maybe relax, not be such control freaks, just let that relationship be, you know, just mutual respect. Yeah, exactly. Think of it a little bit like approaching a friendship with your boss, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can be friendly. The crow is the boss. The crow is the boss, right? You can be cordial and friendly, you know, you know, a, a kind gesture here and there. But you know, Boundaries are important. You don't you don't want to cross too many lines. You don't want them like following you on Facebook and coming to your house all the time. That would be weird. So yeah, so you want to just have that nice friendly relationship, but you also want to be able to be like, you know what? But I'm busy today and not have it be a thing. <laughs> a polite business casual relationship with crows, right? Yes. I, I love that. Business casual. Yeah. Give a crow your business card. <laughs> yeah. Tape a peanut to it, give it your business <laughs> card, but don't invite it for, you know, into your house. For right, your exactly. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for joining me today, Kaylee. This has been amazing. I'm a big fan of your work, big fan of uh, Crow or No. You guys, if you're on Twitter, you can check out Crow or No, hashtag Crow or No, where you can test your Crow identification skills. And But Kaylee is very tricky, so don't trust her. <laughs> <laughs> But do you have anything to plug? Sure. So um, people can find me on Twitter at Corvid Research, on Instagram at Corvid Research, on Facebook, Corvid Research, or on my blog. Want to guess what it's called? 
Um, horse research. <laughs> How did you know, Katie? Uh, or the blog, Corvid Research. I have a ton of articles. I have articles about, um, you know, them recognizing themselves in mirrors. I have articles about whether or not they kill all the songbirds, all kinds of good stuff in there. Just anywhere on social media, Google Corvid Research, and I'll, I'm probably there lurking. Yeah, <laughs> just find, find a, if you find a murder of crows, Kaylee's probably behind it all. <laughs> in Best more ways I'll than one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can find us as always at Creature Feature Pod on Instagram, at Creature Feet Pod on Twitter. That's F E A T, not F E E T. That is something very different. And you can find me on Twitter at Katie Golden just for, you know, my random Katie thoughts. Not always about animals, but sometimes about animals. As always, I am pro bird rights, where it turns out, you guys, birds are pretty cool, and I do think they should be president. But, you know, that's just my opinion. Not to get all political on the podcast, definitely birds should be president. Anyways. Crows would be a hundred times smarter than our president, so. <laughs> guys, get out. <laughs> Get out and vote because I love animals and you can't love animals and not pay attention to politics because, hey, some politicians actually are really bad for the planet and do things that actively harm the environment, which is where we all live and where animals live. And in particular, the Trump administration has been exceedingly bad when it comes to, obviously, environmental protections, but also specifically protections for birds and just like aggressively taking away all of these protections for birds, making it easier for people to kill birds, for industries to kill birds. It's really horrible. So if you love birds, get out and vote, you know, just it's not good. It's not a good situation. If you have any questions or pictures of your pets you want to send, there's creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, you can leave a rating or review. I read all the reviews, and it warms my little, cold, shriveled bird heart. <laughs> Thanks to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exolumina. Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next Wednesday. And happy Creature Week. <laughs> Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. 
brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.